Hey, it's Kathy. I just want to let you know that I'm doing a free five-day workshop. It's called the Abundance Activation Challenge, and it starts today. And it's not too late for you to join us. Today is the last day to join. Go to kathyheller.com slash five day to sign up. The pre-party has been happening and it's been such a blast. There's so many high vibe women in there who are ready to call in more abundance. I know that you will love that you showed up for this. I'll be live at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern every day this week, teaching you how to become a master manifester. You are just going to have the best time. If you want to join us, sign up at kathyheller.com slash five day. Taking the good along the way, slow it down, let it land. When you actually accomplish something, feel it for two, three, four, five seconds in a row, maybe longer if you like, before you race on to the next thing. So instead of feeling like you're always running on empty and you're hungry and you need the next thing, instead, feed yourself, let it land. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller Podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people that will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. Today's guest is such a good person. Oh my gosh, he's such a gem. I feel so moved since I had this conversation with him. I just feel like it's infiltrated my mind and my being and given me so much peace. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. Before I give you the full introduction, I just want to let you know that we have a couple really cool bonuses right now for anybody who's going to sign up for the three-day retreat that I'm leading in June. If you sign up before April 1st, you're actually going to get an additional retreat, which is a virtual retreat where we're going to meet up and we're going to meditate and we're going to do some breath work and we're going to set some intentions for the actual retreat. And you'll get to um, meet some of the people virtually who will be at the retreat with you. So if you sign up before April 1st, you get that. Also, the first 25 people who sign up for the retreat are going to get some really cool swag, beautiful things that will just help you with wellness and all of that. You can go to kathyheller.com slash retreat to sign up. All right. So now I want to tell you about Dr. Rick Hansen, who's here today. 
You're just going to love him. He's a psychologist. He's an expert on positive neuroplasticity. He's the founder of the Global Compassion Coalition and the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, New York Times bestselling author, podcast host, and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. He has spent decades gathering research, information, practices, and resources to help people turn everyday experiences into a powerful sense of lasting well-being. And he's written some incredible books like Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Just One Thing, Buddha's Brain, Mother Nurture. And his most recent book is called Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. It's a comprehensive guide to having healthy, effective, and fulfilling relationships of all kinds, how to handle conflicts, repair misunderstandings, get treated better, be at peace with others, and give the love that you have in your heart. It's packed with so much wisdom, so I definitely want you to go get a copy. He also has a podcast that he co-hosts with his son. How amazing is that? It's called Being Well with Forrest Hansen and Dr. Rick Hansen. And on the show, they teach you how to increase your everyday happiness, build inner strengths, and get the most out of life. They've talked with world-class authors, leaders, and experts like Young Pueblo, Nedra Tawab, Tara Brock, and so many more. Definitely go take a listen. Not only is Dr. Rick brilliant and he's so accomplished, but he's such a humble person. He's lovable and just being in his presence was like floating on a cloud of calm and ease. This is hands down one of my favorite episodes, so I'm really excited to share it with you. Without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Dr. Rick Hansen. Hi, Dr. Rick Hansen. Thank you so much for coming and joining me. It's completely my pleasure and please call me Rick, okay? You know, it's so funny you say that. That already starts us out knowing a lot about you and how humble you are. You've been saying a lot of important things and writing a lot of important things about how we can better our lives, how we can better our relationships. Before we go into talking about your sort of like the body of your work, why on earth do you think you personally were led to this pursuit? Like, what do you think it was about your life journey that made you want to look into this so, so deeply? No surprise. You're right at the bullseye, right? The heart of the matter. That's such a deep question. Um, When I look back in my earliest memories is this wistful, sad, poignant knowing that there's so much unnecessary unhappiness. I was like two, three. It wasn't that I was a genius kid. I think many, many people, maybe you included, had a sense of that, that even in pretty ordinary situations like I grew up in, an intact family, not in poverty, no abuse, no craziness in the home, still there was so much hassling, worrying, fussing, feuding, meanness, death of a thousand paper cuts. I was like, why? You know, so that kind of started me on my way. And then also, by the time I became a teenager, I was really miserable. I was very unhappy. I was a very dorky young kid going through school because I skipped a grade. I have a late birthday as well. And right around 15, I realized that everything boiled down to what was I learning now, right? Because the past sucked. The present was pretty crummy (laughs) as well. I'm going to keep it PG rated in my language here. But what I could, though, is I could learn how to be a little more comfortable with girls or a little less weird around some other kids or a little (laughs) less stupid around a potential bully or a little less triggered by my parents. I could learn and grow a little every day. And then that, I think, really set me on my way, both out of personal out of a longing to help others that was there when I was very young, and then also out of personal motivation that was there when I was a miserable teenager. I mean, I could listen to you talk forever because well, what you say out loud is really what everybody's thinking or maybe didn't put words to. But I think I love that that line you said, like a thousand paper cuts, you know, yeah. that that experience of knowing there's like this unnecessary 
suffering going on. And I for sure agree with you. I mean, yesterday we were with my kids at the beach in Santa Monica, flying a kite. And my daughters, because they're six, nine and 11 are arguing over so many ridiculous things. And I was like, you guys, you're standing here with kites and scooters looking out at the sunset. What are you doing? Right. And I mean, they have loving parents and we were about to go to a beautiful dinner and they're wearing a warm jacket. They're warm. Like there's, it's just amazing the human experience and our ability to find a thought that just dysregulates us so easily. And so, gosh, I mean, what do you think is maybe the first step to less suffering? You have to care about your own suffering. And as obvious as that is, half the people I've worked with, including my clinical practice, mainly women, because they're most interested in mental health. And also, they are also suffering. Interestingly, on average, an American man is more self-compassionate than an average American woman. Just think about that, because women are so self-critical as a generalization, you know, to the extent that gender categories matter. So number one, it's the opening chapter in my new book, you know, be loyal to yourself. Get on your own side. Know what it's like to be a good friend or supporter or ally. That feeling of compassion for them and also determination on their behalf. And imagine bringing that to yourself. That's the pilot light. Without that pilot light being ignited, you can read all the books, you can listen to the podcasts, you can go to all the therapy in the world, but it won't have traction because there's no pilot light. And the pilot light is that fundamental stance of being on your own side, treating yourself like you matter. People, women in particular, are trained to treat others like they matter immensely. But how to treat yourself like you matter, not more, but not less than others. You know, it's so big what you're saying. And this morning I was getting dressed and I noticed these thoughts in my head talking to me about the way that I look. I gained a tiny bit of weight and I was beating myself up like, oh my gosh, what are you going to do now? How are you going to, you know, and yesterday you had a glass of wine at dinner and that doesn't help you lose the weight. And then I said, could you just stop? I literally stopped myself in the closet and said, could you just stop? What about the fact that you're a great mom, you're doing your best and now you have to add to yourself that you're behind because you want to be one size less in clothes, like your body is doing the best it can. And I'm like, I know better. And I'm still catching myself do that. Forget the fact that I beat myself up for, you know, working too much or want to be a better mom or if my kids are fighting, what does that mean about me? And how come I didn't do enough to prevent that? I mean, there's, there's a thousand thoughts like that a second. So you're right. When you said, well, women see me more or something like that, you said, because they tend to be more interested. I was like, oh, good for us. But then when you said we're more critical, I was like, no, no, he's right. We are. (laughs) That sucks. So what does that mean? Let's talk more about that for a moment. I know that's just the beginning yeah. of your book, but that's great. That's it's so right important. at it. As usual, you're in the bullseye. It's great. <laughs> so how do we really like not just pay lip service to that, but actually do that? Yeah. Here's like a super short riff. If your mind is like a garden, you can relate to it in three ways that are useful. One is that you can witness it mindfully. That alone is useful. Second, you can pull weeds. Third, you can plant flowers. And that structure, let be, let go, let in, is really fundamental. And it means we have three kinds of things we can do, which is what I'm always looking for because I'm pragmatic. What can we do? And you can kind of move around among them. 
some people get really stuck in just being with the garden. They're really great at mindful witnessing. They could meditate till the cows come home. That's they're me. still a neurotic. Not about you, but they're that's, still that's true. they're still neurotic and they're tough to live with or sleep with or whatever, right? You know. So we need to work with the mind, not just be with the mind. And as a neuropsychologist, that point is really underscored by the physical basis of these mental tendencies that you and I are talking about. They don't just readily budge. And we have a brain that, by the way, evolved with what's called a negativity bias, which makes it like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. So we need to be active with our minds and therefore active in changing our brains from the inside out, not just observing it mindfully as valuable as that is. So that's Maybe a little bit of a frame. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Is that okay so far? Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. that's amazing. I studied for three years at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Okay, Center. great. Yeah, know those folks, Diana Winston and so on, yeah. Diana's adorable, yeah. She's not pretentious, so I right. like that about her. Anyways, the reason I say that is because I loved it. You know, studying mindfulness and yeah. learning how to be still was really the hardest journey ever, but really <laughs> important. However, I've never heard this part, even though I've, yeah. you know, listened to John Kabat-Zinn and I, but this part is really important, especially for people like me who, you know, my parents both have a lot of their own intense mental activity going on. And I'm also an Ashkenazi Jew and honestly, like epigenetically, that oh, is yeah. definitely passed down through exactly. you know, 5,000 5, years of trauma and running and escaping and whatever the totally. hell it is. There's a yeah. lot of that. So what does that mean? If let's say you've kind of done a little bit of the noticing part, but now yep. you actually want to insert a different train, a different track. Yep. How do you actually do that and get it to stick? Yeah. So that little structure, right? Witness the garden, pull weeds, plant flowers, lets you know sort of what you're doing. So let's say you've observed it. You're mad about something. You're hurt about something. You're worried about something. Now, how can you work with it, right? So there's definitely the part that's about letting go. So Let's say you're self-critical about how you look or something. Let's say you do the letting go, the releasing part first, the pulling the weeds. You know, you might argue against the belief. Hey, that's wrong. Or you might have the feeling of like inadequacy or uh, the kind of slump inside, soft, sad, and you deliberately just let it go. Exhale, imagine it blowing out of you like a smoggy cloud. Release, release, release. Sometimes what comes up is there are desires, like maybe the desire is to, I don't think you would do this, but people cut themselves. They hurt themselves out of punishing themselves. You, you maybe say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or maybe a person is upset and they say, you know, I'm just going to drink three glasses of wine real fast and anesthetize myself. Mm. You let go of that desire. So there's the letting go whatever, in whatever ways are helpful, okay? And then especially what I focus on is growing flowers in the garden of the mind. Because that's the most positive thing you could do. It's very pragmatic. It can take a while to pull weeds. You can always grow flowers in your mind. And flowers crowd out weeds over time. So mm, I've really specialized beautiful. in the positive neuroplasticity, to throw a fancy phrase in, of the actual how of doing this. So then you would think, what's the opposite of being mad at yourself for how you look? or whatever it might be. For me, I grew up as a dorky kid. I was shy, awkward. I just, there was the absence of the good, not just the presence of the bad. 
You know, the absence of the good can be as wounding and hurtful as the presence of the bad. I wasn't overtly abused or particularly bullied, but I was really lonely. I was left out. I was ignored. I was dismissed. I was, you know, the run of the litter brushed aside. So I landed in college with this enormous hole in my heart that was empty. And then I set about gradually, you know, a drop at a time, you know, a brick at a time. It felt like a big hole. I would deliberately take in the good of the opposite of what I felt. So for me, it was more like feeling included. I would look for experiences of feeling included and wanted and valued and liked by other people. It's even just seen by them. So if you're trying to grow the good, you would start thinking about, okay, what do I wish was in how I felt? How do I wish I thought about things? What am I trying to grow inside? What are the flowers? I'm trying to grow in the garden of my mind. And then you can deliberately look for experiences of them like with regard to weight, maybe everything you just said is great. Do you believe it? You're saying it to yourself, but can you let yourself really develop conviction about it? Can you let it land? Can you have experiences of other people being really happy with you as you are and let those experiences land? Because of the negativity bias, our brain is fertile for weeds and stony ground for flowers. So we need to tilt to the authentic flowers to give them time to root inside literally our brain so they can leave lasting traces there. Mm. Summarized a ton of stuff. I hope I didn't talk too fast. What do you think? No, no, it was so beautiful. And you're so lovable and likable that it's hard to believe that you had that experience, but it's also easy to believe because we Mm. all have these like sabotagers in our heads that come up with all kinds of fascinating things. And so just so I can say it out loud for the the audience, your most recent book is called Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection and Fostering Love. And we've already been talking a little bit about, as you said, Mm -hmm. some of what you begin the book with, but when you started it, what were you hoping if a reader finished it? Like what to you is success? Like what Mm -hmm. makes the book successful? If someone reads it and then therefore has X experience or X new thought, Mm -hmm. what to you would would have made that book worthwhile for that reader? That's great. They know what to do next. What I mean is when that thought comes up that let's say, oh, I'm bad or ugly or unlikable because of something, what do you do next inside your own mind? Or especially if you're in a relationship with anybody at work, with your kids, with your partner, your parents, uh, the crazy neighbor, the jerk in the cubicle down the hall, the real world, you know, the people you see on TV whose politics you don't like, what do you do next, right? And that's uh, what I've seen a million times as a longtime couples counselor, also 41 years of marriage, just finished, you know, just got that, uh, ticked that, uh, okay, I don't know. That's your there. most impressive uh, uh, Valentine's Day. Yeah, great <laughs> wife, great wife. I just learned a lot. And what I've seen a lot with people is they don't know what to do next. They don't know what to say or think next. So I want people to know what to do next. 50 very, very simple, short, three-page chapters, essentially. And They include things like the one that I keep thinking about a lot is admit fault and move on, for example. Or another one is get on your own side, you know, be loyal to yourself like we talked about. Or another one is to resize the relationship. Sometimes what really works is to not cut people off, but to resize the relationship so it's more suited to its actual foundations. Anyway, so those are the 
some examples of what I hope people would have so they feel equipped, they feel empowered. I know so many people who feel they're kind of in stagnant relationships or yeah. they've hit a plateau, they're tolerable but not great, or they're in this ongoing kind of eh with someone, or they're just carrying around very understandably they're mad or hurt about something that happened or they're not getting their needs met. You know, in the average American family, for example, my first book was about long-term support of mothers, body, mind, and relationships. On average, in American family, the woman is on, in which there's a heterosexual couple, okay, she's on task, on average, 20 hours a week more than her male partner is, yeah, on average. I, I can uh, justify that, yeah. Because seen it. And that just creates resentments, understandable and issues. How do you talk about it? You know, with, let's say, children, how do you share the load fairly? How do you get on the same page as parents? Um, how do you make room for your intimate friendship, which might be more of a priority for one person than the other person? Yeah. Right? Um, how do you do that stuff? How do you function in a work environment where, you know, other people are stealing credit for your accomplishments? I have a business background, too. How do you deal with a boss who's kind of a bully or, you know, a coworker who's saying stuff that has a, like a sexual innuendo and you're just freaking tired of it? Yeah. What do you do? So that's what the book's about. What do you do next? And that's an empowering people to be able to do that. I love that. That's why we'll definitely put a link to the book in the show notes. And it is so important because I do feel like there's a lot that comes with a general understanding of concepts, but I feel like we are still all missing a tool bag of like, yeah, very right. what do you do once you have a conceptual understanding? One of the questions I have for you is in my own personal life, it's been fascinating. There's like a dichotomy. One is one side of it is I've been in therapy since I'm like 12 because my parents got divorced and they thought that was a good idea. And there were some therapists along the way that really was a good idea. And sometimes mm. it was actually not, right? Because people are people and one size doesn't fit all just because you have a degree doesn't mean you have this right. ability to hold the space or whatever it is. It's fine. But eventually when I got married, my husband and I had several different people that we had seen over the years. And at a certain point, we stopped going because I felt like it was making things, sometimes it would be, make it better and sometimes it would make it worse. And then this other part, sort of other direction, lended itself to what I thought made things a little better, which was forget talking to him about my needs, forget talking to him about what I want to be changing in his behavior. Just look at my perception, just be responsible for my perception. And if I'm perceiving a certain way, and if my vibration is in flow and I'm aligned and I'm meditating and whatever, it's going to have an effect on him. Right. And there's a lot of good to that, right? There's a lot of good. And so we both kind of went off and did a bunch of like Vipassana retreats and he does yoga. And, and it really, I do think if I looked at both of those schools of thought, it does seem as though there's more well-being in our life because we both have our own personal practices of mm -hmm. finding our own way out of our projections, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And yet it's not perfect either because I feel like my question, and I, I want to see if I can articulate it, even though I sort of said it with like a, I gave you a picture that kind of leads to the question. But the question is, what's the balance of all that? Like, mm. where is it that it's like, well, if you're, so no. So you're not getting your needs met and he keeps leaving dishes in the sink. But if you just in a good place, you'll be okay. You can, right. And then the other side of that is like, 
Nope. Like mm. I want, not that he does that. He's actually the one that does dishes, but I'm just giving a dumb yeah. sort of example. Like where is the center of what actually pulls all of that together mm-hmm. where you are projecting all the time you walk in the room? Isn't that the observer effect? Like the electron changes based on the observer. Mm-hmm. So there's what you project, but then there's also an area where you might need to stand for something and say, yeah. X, Y, and Z does not work for me. It doesn't yeah. feel good. And no matter how relaxed I am and no matter how at peace I am, you know, I don't prefer to have neo-Nazis over for dinner. Like there would, there'd be no amount of work that I would do where I would be like, yeah, great. Right. And like, I don't mean to compare <laughs> anything I just said to that. They're not even in the same universe, but there is a way in which mindfulness can take you to this place of like, no, like you oh, don't yeah. want to be a doormat. Right. So what do you think about how to find the balance and all that? You're awesome. I'm honestly, you know, we never met before this. I just, from my heart, I got to tell you, you're awesome. Seriously. And you're so cute. Thank you. It makes me feel so It's seen. totally true. Like, wow. Right at the, and again, right at the heart of the matter. Ba-bam. So my two cents on it. Okay. First, I'm very suspicious of any kind of rationale, justification, narrative that tries to talk a group of people into putting up with something who've been told to put up with something for millennia. Women, other groups, really leery of that sort of thing. And also really leery of any kind of, you know, rationale, narrative, message that says to people, you shouldn't be so mad about that. You shouldn't be angry about that. You should look to yourself about that. When in fact, they belong to a group of people that's been told that unjustly and terribly for many, many thousands of years. Okay, so that said, here's a proverb from the early teachings of the Buddha. I think about it. It's essentially, one is not wise who can recite the sacred scriptures. One is truly wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. Peaceable, friendly, and fearless. So I'm definitely for, and the book is a lot about, how do you be peaceable and how do you be appropriately friendly so that you come from goodwill rather than ill will. I mean, you have a certain amount of self-regulation, like you talked about doing yoga, vipassana, stuff like that. Okay, great. All that said, now we're actually getting ready to talk about something like dishes in the sink or different ways of raising children or or wanting to be supported in in certain situations. There's completely a place for being strong. You can be strong with heart. The sweet spot is straightforward to be assertive. It may not be easy, but it's straightforward. It's straightforward to be compassionate and kind. Bring them together. How do you actually do that? That interests me immensely because that's the hard spot and the sweet spot. And the book's a lot about actually how to do that. So for me, the how of that, I'll tell you several things that the how. One is take care of your own side of the street. That's one of the chapters. And that was a great lesson for me. Early on uh, with my wife, I started to realize I was complaining about her in my mind. You know how you work up a bill of particulars? Yeah. Right. You know, little speeches at two in the morning. You're going to say tomorrow, never do. But anyway, (laughs) sometimes you do. Okay. And I realized, you know, my best strategy is to relentlessly take care of my side of the street, which means taking maximum reasonable personal responsibility for her wants and her grievances and her complaints and to literally zero out her complaints one after another. Not as a doormat, but because that was my power move. That was the strongest, most direct way to lower the heat 
and remove anything she could find fault with reasonably and put myself on the moral high ground to then ask for what I needed. So it doesn't mean giving up. It just means playing the longer game. So you take care of your side. Okay. And then second, what are the facts? I would do this weird thing with couples sometimes. I'd say, hey, how about each of you track your time to the 15 minutes for the whole week? Just what do you do? How do you spend your time? Whatever categories make sense for you. And then do it for each day. It should take no more than five minutes a day. And then at the end of the week, total it up, come back to my office, and we'll talk about it. Unbelievably eye-opening. On average, research shows that a typical heterosexual couple raising children together, the man is doing more than the wife thinks he is, but he's doing less than he thinks he is. Uh. So, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so you're trying to get the facts. Facts are great. And I think there are facts. You know, I'm cool with quantum mechanics and the observer effect. That's at the quantum particle level. It's not <laughs> at the level of electrons, unless they're entangled, blah, blah. But at the level of rocks and bricks and dishes in the sink and hours clocked spending dressing kids every day, that stuff's real. Track the real. So you know your facts. And then really zero in on what's important to you. Some things you take a big breath, you realize you've been banging away on that forever, and you just kind of need to give up about it. It's not worth fighting about. And you resize the relationship. You just disengage from now on. On the other hand, there are certain things that are really important to honor that you care about. And, you know, again, as a generalization, women have been get socialized starting in very early ages that they shouldn't care about their own needs in certain regards. So to me, there's a lot here that's about reclaiming healthy entitlement, that certain things do matter, clarifying on the basis of facts and general goodwill. But on that basis, boom, what do you care about? And then if you care about it, get into it for real. I see a lot of people who are in this dreadful middle zone of sputtering where it's the worst of both worlds. They've entered into the argument, but not with sufficient clarity and gravity and dignity and strength to really go all the way to a good result without going to war with the other person. But in that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh way, Thich Nhat Hanh, right? Described as a combination cloud, butterfly, and bulldozer. (laughs) Okay, I rattle a lot. What do you think? I just think it's so beautiful. And it gives me just, I don't know, I could just feel my vibration just kind of move into the room more because I feel like I've done both sides of the spectrum. I spent years in my marriage kind of just wanting to be dutiful, whatever that means. I don't know. And then I spent years being like, I don't know, whatever the extreme version is of a feminist, like you should do this and I'm doing it right. And then I've spent other time where I thought I was in the middle, but I think it's the worst of all worlds, actually, because what I realize about, and again, I'm generalizing, but I see it every day, is that women are over-functioning codependents, where we're such people pleasers that then we try to find this balance where we're like, it's okay, I want to foster love in my workplace, I want to foster love in my home, and so I will just deplete myself totally, and also still try to be like great in business and great at home. And I'll just slowly ratchet down my needs. You know what I mean? And it's just like, what? Hang on a minute. You know, like, I feel like I want you to speak a little bit more to the, if you could, Mm -hmm. that feeling of um, being an over-functioning codependent, being such a people pleaser, because Mm -hmm. what I've noticed is, and you just used the word bulldozer, which I love Thich Nhat Hanh. And I was very sad when he 
kind of went into the non-physical world, but I never heard him described like that, but it is true. He might be gentle, but he's powerful. And I think that is the balance. And I was just talking to a business colleague, Donald Miller, and he goes, you have to be willing sometimes as, you know, as a person, you're not always looking to be liked in the moment, but you want to be respected. And if you always need to be liked, then sometimes you might not say what you actually need to say. And I'm like, oh my, my whole life, my whole life, I would choose to be liked over anything else with my kids, with my husband, with the people who work with me. So I think women suffer from that nonstop, whether they want to admit it or not is a different story, but how could we begin to find a way to be loving? Cause that is a value. I think, I think that's yeah. our number one value again, generalizing mm-hmm. not for every yeah. woman, but I think that that's so for me, but I really want to be powerful too. I want to be respected and not always liked. And I want to be willing to not be liked, I guess. And that's really scary new territory for me. That's really interesting. If you'll permit me, I'll kind of go after the bullseye a little bit here too. So a key question that I ask is, in effect, how are you trying to avoid the dreaded experience? And so if you look at that, there's a dreaded experience. Like what would happen if you were grounded and strong and firm? What do you fear? might happen if you were grounded, strong, and firm, and stepped out of the conventional appeasing feminine script? What do you fear might happen? And so then the question becomes, can you tolerate risking that? And the more we can tolerate risking the dreaded experience, the more we push back the bars on our invisible cage. Mm -hmm. Because our lives are bounded by the experiences that will do anything to avoid possibly risking. In fact, If you, being personal, you're very good-hearted. If you are just firm and real and you're really smart, so the things you care about, they're going to have a validity to them, most likely people would love it. They might get a little twitchy at first, (laughs) like you've changed the usual script. Like, where do you go, Kathy? I want Kathy back. But then they'd be like, oh, they'd adapt to it. Most likely we overestimate the bad routinely. Usually, most people do. And so most likely, you could afford to risk the dreaded experience. And so the trick is to do it in one small step at a time. Get used to it. Push the bars back of the invisible cage a bit, then do it again and again and again. And along the way, it's really helpful to kind of channel people who are models for you of that. Like I've done a lot of rock climbing and I'd watch people who are better human geckos. And then I sort of imagine like being that myself and I'd be a better climber. I really do think about the gravitas of different people, you know, that are for me exemplars of this kind of thing. Nelson Mandela, Mm. other teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh in his unmistakable way, just Malala, you know, speaking truth to power, naming it, calling it. I know. Thunberg, ba-boom, powerful stuff. So, and then you can feel, okay, that's how to be about that. And then you can communicate from that place. It's so beautiful. And I'm so grateful that you not only write books, but you have a podcast, which I'm going to ask you about in, in a second, because I want all of our listeners to have many touch points with you. I was going to ask you, you one last question before I ask you about the podcast, which is some of the people you just mentioned, and again, I'm I'm assuming, but I think it's a correct assumption, during his life, Thich Nhat Hanh or someone like Nelson Mandela, but let's go with Thich Nhat Hanh for a second. I don't guess that he walks around 
looking at the world and he's just like angry about all the ways that people are behaving. Like Mm -hmm. the Dalai Lama is not going to have a bad day because of stuff. He's going to choose where he puts his focus and he is going to have agency over his day, right? He is going to find his well-being, whether he's stuck in the 405 in traffic or Mm -hmm. he's looking at some rally by some disgusting person. It's just not going to move him. He's not movable. So I say that because I have a lot of listeners and then they'll say, how can I possibly get through my day with what's happening with women in Iran? I can't possibly function. Or how can I possibly function when there's trafficking? And then I say things like, and I'm not nearly as wise as you are. And I mean that Mm. I feel like I talk to you and I'm like, I feel like I've just entered a monastery. But but what I do say is I say there's a million things you could get upset about. So that doesn't seem productive. Like there's a zillion horrible things like that going on. So like, how will it help other people to be consumed by how upset you are? Right. It seems to me that it's easier said than done, obviously. But I look at somebody like Thich Nhat Hanh or Nelson Mandela and it's like the way you're making change is by somehow not being in the lowest vibration that you could have, which is your anger and your reactivity. So that is like an interesting thing, right? It's like, yes, you want to be strong, but you don't want to be consumed by just being so pissed all day long with such blinding anger. But you're right. There's a reason to be angry about those things. And yet you don't seem to me like someone who's either unaware or angry. Like you you might be appropriately (laughs) angry, but I'm saying- I don't get the sense from you that you're going to just like honk somebody in traffic or cut somebody off at Starbucks because you're so upset about the 15 zillion things that are going wrong in the universe, right? So how can you be aware, be a fairly empathetic, compassionate Mm -hmm. person, and you're not smugly going on with your day. You're just like not consumed because it's exhausting when you follow certain accounts and then you see the injustices, you just feel like you can't get out the door. You can't get out of bed. Yeah. Well, I, I like the Kathy monastery. <laughs> I want to so come sweet. to your monastery. Uh, right on. It's chaos. Anyway. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. Well, no, it's right at the heart of the matter, a deep one. And I don't claim to have an ultimate answer. I do observe people who uh, have really combined profound personal practice and social justice. Thich Han, definitely, the Dalai Lama, definitely, um, others throughout history. What can we learn from them? So a couple of things yeah. here. Personally, to be really clear, I started meditating in 1974. You know, off and on, you know, really on in the last 30 some odd years, the older I get, the more peaceful I get and the madder I get. I have had it up to here with 10,000 <laughs> years of Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I've had it up to here. And if I could put a plug in for this thing I started called the Global Compassion Coalition, people can check it out. Global Compassion Coalition. The idea is to create a frame, a, a new kind of global commons in which we can be big enough to be strong enough to drive long overdue systemic change. Mm, okay. Love that. so that's kind of contextual for me. Inside that it goes really back to those early observations in my childhood that are really pragmatic, like how is it working for you? If you're consumed with helpless outrage, that's really toxic on the brain. We haven't even gotten into the toxicity and your nervous system, your immune Cortis, system, the cortisol, lung, cortisol, yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Like it's not good, you know? And it's one thing to have sorrow arise and to be with it mindfully, with compassion, 
for that suffering. That's healthy. That's sweet. That's human. That's adorable. Like you said about Diana, that's admirable, Mm -hmm. right? It's noble to have a heart that's big enough to be willing to do that yourself. But if that sorrow, that outrage invades you and poisons you and remains, you're no good for anybody and you're suffering Uh, along the way. So well said. Wow. Yeah. So it's that balance where classically it's the technically it's the jewel and the lotus, that combination of basically love and wisdom together. The love, here's a line from Sri Nisargada, Nisargada. He said, wisdom teaches me I'm nothing. Love teaches me I'm everything. And between those two banks, the river of my life flows. Mm. Whoa, right? And so there's that combination and people kind of can swing back and forth. Some people are too much on the wisdom side. They're too equanimous. They're too cool. They're too like, well, you know, and then they'll throw out some BS line like, oh, I guess it's all meant to be that way. No, yeah. it's not meant <laughs> that 10,000 kids a day die of hunger. No, Freaking right. A. That's not meant to be. Spare me that whatever. Yeah. On the other side, some people have a heart that's so big. They're so, especially women, they're so permeable. They're so attuned to others that they get flooded. And then they're less able to protect their own well-being because we have duties to ourselves too. Technically, we tend to have the highest duty to the Mm. people we have the most power over. Who do you have the most power over, Kathy? It's who you're going to be tomorrow. You know, you still have duties to children, that's very special, but very much to oneself. So we got to balance those duties. And for people that are more at that overly tilted toward the heart side, they could be helped by being more toward the equanimity wisdom side of things. And for me, that's kind of how to do it. I mean, this is just probably the most important, beautiful answer ever. Thank you so much for that. Uh, it's funny you said the jewel and the lotus. I mean, that's that's a thing. It's not that funny that you said it, but when I was in college, I was editor of my college paper and oh. um, I interviewed Roger Kamenitz who wrote this book called The Jewel and the Lotus. And uh. it was just a really cool story about how he went and met the Dalai Lama in Tibet. And anyway, that was, I think, the beginning of my podcast way back when. But it's really important what you're saying. It's so important. I feel like this could do a service to the humanity. You know, this should be inserted at the end of every news broadcast, what you just said. Because it's not okay to say, well, it's meant to be, and let's look the other way. And yet, I love when you said, I've become more peaceful than ever and mad, madder than ever. And I have a friend who lives in Jerusalem who Mm. he's Palestinian. He married a Jewish woman and they created this. I mean, it's so incredible that it's, it's hard to believe that they have the practice to do this, but what they created is an organization that every single week sits with Jews and Palestinians in a circle and you don't leave the room until you meditate together and you can look Mm. at each other in the eyes, having heard each other. And it's so incredibly beautiful. And I'm like this, whatever this is. And he said, yeah, it it comes from not looking the other way, Mm. caring deeply about it. Yeah. Right. And having a practice that we can actually lean into it without being destroyed by the pain of it. And I'm just like, can you imagine if like that was happening all over the world in all mm. different places, right? Pakistan and Iran and Venezuela. And I mean, every kind yeah. right here, right here in the middle of America. I mean, like, but in order to do that, you need to A, be willing to see what you don't want to see. Mm. You have to be willing to admit that something does make you mad. 
And you have to have enough of your own tools to stay present. And gosh, I mean, I don't know. You're helping people to develop those tools, you know, bless you. Well, you are. I mean, the one thing I'm, I just did is I, uh, I called a good friend of mine, Susan Kaiser Greenland to ask her if I can create a program at my kid's school Mm. for mindfulness. You know, they pay lip service. Like, Oh, we know mindfulness. (laughs) Well, once a year we have a, we have an assembly and I'm like, no, I need this like every day. I need three (laughs) times a day. That's right. Um, So I'm trying. I think we're all trying. Let's talk about your podcast. They say that people who listen to podcasts tend to listen to more podcasts. So hopefully Uh, those who are listening will, will add this to their playlist. It's called being well with Forrest Hansen and Dr. Rick Hansen. And this is so sweet. This is your son that you co-host this yeah. with? Yeah, I know. It's grown immensely. It's not quite at your scale, but uh, we're kind of, you know, rising upward. And it's basically about being well, fundamentally. So we interview people who are very knowledgeable about sort of how the mind works and practice. We've talked to a lot of people also, Forrest and I talk about it. You had that father-son combination. So anyway, people can check it out. It's pretty cool, actually. And we're a good combination because uh, he loosens me up some. I'm not uptight at all, but he could, no, you know, you're he knows, he I was like knows how to right away how playful you are, but okay. Go okay, ahead. good. Yeah, he knows how to rev me up and I, I kind of tease him and we'll do therapy on each other, like right there on screen, you know, as it were. So it's a pretty, pretty exciting. It's pretty cool. So you talk about, first of all, I think it says so much about you that your son wants to hang out with you this month. No, can you believe something. that? Well, I'm it says a lot. It says a lot. I'm an 11 year old who's already like, can I opt out of this family occasion? Can I I'm like, no, Gabby, you have to come. Um, so you talk about increasing your everyday happiness, which on some level we, that's what we've been talking about. But again, because you're pragmatic, I want listeners to have the answer to the following question. If they want to stop at the end of this episode and do one thing today, one small thing to increase their happiness. What do you think is one thing they could do? Oh, I love it. I even have an answer. Oh, amazing. And it, you can call that it the five out. minute. Yeah, the five minute challenge. And it's actually about the one minute challenge. So number one is you go through your day, slow down a handful of times for a breath or two or three to take in the good. You have that nice little moment with Gabby or you get something important done or you get a big win, something happens or you just look out the window. Uh, it's been raining here in Northern California, but then the sun came through a minute ago. It's like, oh, Slow down. Technically, negative experiences get consolidated into neural structure within a second or so, very quickly. Most positive experiences, unless they're million-dollar moments, need more time. So we need to stay with it, okay? That will change your life. If you just say, okay, I got a little list, three times at least over the course of the day, I'm going to slow down and take in the good. Suddenly, what are you doing? You're looking (laughs) things to take in. And then when you take them in, technically, you literally are hardwiring happiness into your innermost being, as well as other inner strengths like calm, self-worth, open-heartedness, even with people that are challenging and so forth. That's a great thing. Second great thing, just before bed, it's a really good time. Or you can do it when you first wake up. This has to do with some technical brain evolution stuff. I think you're a fellow geek. We could get into it. We probably won't. <laughs> Definitely but, a fellow geek for sure. Yep. yep. Three stage evolution of the brain, brainstem, subcortex, neocortex, associated loosely, reptilian, mammalian, primate, in other words, the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. To come into the green zone where we feel like 
we're okay in the present, we need to pet the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey. In other words, we need to address, we need to help the lizard feel safe. We need to help the inner mouse feel satisfied or content. And we need to help the inner monkey feel loved or loving. So in a very simple way, just before bed, which is when your brain's really receptive, or when you first wake up, help yourself settle in to a basic sense in the present of kind of calm strength for safety. You're okay. You're okay. Basic peacefulness. And then settle into a sense of gratitude, thankfulness, and to feel content, knowing that you can still reach for more while feeling content already. Huh. That's a radical new idea for a lot of people, especially in LA where I grew up. You can reach for the stars while feeling content with the present. And third, have a warm-hearted feeling. Just bring to mind someone you care about or who cares about you, your heart's warm, poof. Peaceful, contented, rested in love. Just that. Take a minute. That's like a mini meditation. Does tremendous good things for your immune system, your nervous system, your hormonal regulation, puts you in a good state. And then on the basis of it, kawoosh, go off into dreamland. Or if you do it in the morning, start your day. That is so beautiful and so pragmatic. And it's something that you guys can go back and rewind this and write it down, or you could just remember it. And it's great for that. kids too. I've done a lot of work with kids. I've been in a lot of schools. And, and you know, kids who will put up with you, putting them to bed roughly to about age 14. I think probably you're still there maybe with your 11-year-old. I don't know. I have a 6-year-old and, and a 9-year-old too. So. Yeah. Just a little thing. If you, you know, just kind of walk them through it. Hey, what could help you feel kind of calm and peaceful, a little more settled and, and strong, less anxious, letting go of worries, letting go of anxieties, you're, you know. And then, okay, what can help you feel a little more grateful, thankful? What were some good things? What are you happy about today? What's good in your life? Yeah, there's crud, but what's good in your life also? And then loved, you know, here we are, we're connected. Mommy loves you. You love me. We're good. Ooh. You know, it's like, there's this classic, I bet you know the book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I don't oh, know that book. Great book title, right? Book, yeah, but I don't know. I want to get it now. Oh, yeah. Classic Robert Sapolsky on stress. Yeah. Zebras don't get ulcers because they don't spend much time in the red zone. And that's partly because most episodes of stress in the wild end quickly, one way or another. Right? right, right. But most of the time, they're just chilling. We need to come back to the green zone more and more ourselves as human beings and to teach our children how to do it as well. Because otherwise, we're mildly to moderately stressed most of the time, running around, you know, chasing this or that and self-medicating at the end of the day. It's not good. No. So green zone, green zone. And then repeatedly, just by doing this little practice, a minute, you are literally hardwiring the habit of resilient well-being into your body literally into neuroplastic change inside your body by that little practice adding up as the days go by. That's so incredible. I would ask you one last thing because you highlighted it and I was yeah. like, oh, that was going to be my last question, but now I have to ask him this. So this piece about being content, but reaching for more, it's yeah. like just so fascinating. It's kind of central to your own work. It's central. And yeah. I live in LA too. You mentioned like, you yeah, yeah. LA. I knew that. Yeah. Um, so I know the feeling of both the wonder that comes from the city and also the, the pain 
that comes from constantly needing the next goalpost. So that's fascinating. And my rabbi is a Kabbalist who's very meditative, who lives in the old city of Jerusalem. And I studied with him for three Mm. years there. And I used to say to him, okay, then when I got into Buddhism, I was like, all right, help me understand this. Like in the Buddhist idea, it's like, I'm good. It's all the Sabbath. It's all Shabbat. It's all peace. It's we're good. We're good. We got it all. And in the Jewish idea, it's like, what are we going to do to strive to take yeah. right? Make the world better. Yeah. It's always about bettering, bettering, bettering. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but that's that's exhausting. He's like, well, that's why one day a week we rest, right? One day a week we have this meditation, <laughs> right? One day a week you have this rest. But it's fascinating to me because all the peace is already here. Because we didn't mm-hmm. come here for a pile of stuff. And we really, even if you can make it better. On some level, the, the well-being exists. The well-being you chase, the well-being you want, the feeling, yeah. the sponsored feeling you want is it already existing. But at the same time, there is something so fun about creating. And there is something so compelling about having a desire and wanting it to be bigger. But, 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 boy, do we live in a culture in the West, and especially in LA or New York or yeah. whatever, where you become consumed and you forget that there's any capacity to feel fully whole right now. Yeah. And yet it's been hard for me because I love John Kabat-Zinn. I've read every single book he's written. I find him to be in just such a gem. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I got stuff to do. I got to go. Like, oh, yeah. I want to do stuff. And so yeah. it's been in the recent part of my life, very recently, I've been trying to find my way to the fullness and the wholeness of the equanimity of the moment. And it's almost like, because I was so addicted to achieving for so long, when I turn on that faucet, it kind of knocks me out of the other place. And so how, when you just said that, I'm like, I've never heard anybody like you, right? Anyone who's this thoughtful and mindful usually does not talk about the reaching. Oh yeah, You did. So now I had to ask you, how on earth do you do that? <laughs> That's great. As usual, right at the bullseye. There you go. There you're doing it again, Kathy. What up? <laughs> you know, okay, good. Well, all right. Tons there. First off, you may know the metaphor of the hell realm in Tibetan Buddhism of the hungry ghosts. These yeah, are okay. This is know. this is LA. This is Western consumer culture, basically. Uh, and it's a hell realm with these beings with godlike powers. And vast appetites represented by enormous bellies, but their capacity to satisfy their appetites are through the pinhole of a mouth. Uh, ding, ding, ding. That's it. Most people uh, in the West were, who are chasing experiences of one kind or another, they don't take in the good along the way. They don't internalize it. They don't internalize it. I can feel that. I get it. It's Every a hell realm, it. or at least purgatory. It's not good, right? And it drives consume, the consumerism that's... A, burning our planet up and trashing our resources and just trashing the resources, the endowment of the planet that we should steward for generations to come, right? So one, take in the good along the way, slow it down, let it land. When you actually accomplish something, feel it for two, three, four, five seconds in a row, maybe longer if you like, before you race on to the next thing. So instead of feeling like you're always running on empty and you're hungry and you need the next thing, instead, feed yourself, feed yourself, let it land. And then if you think about the Buddhist teaching, since you've gone there, the uh, second noble truth of translated routinely is craving. Craving is a drive state based on something missing or something wrong. 
But instead, if you feel, if you're aware of the fullness and the balance in the present, you don't have to be driven by craving. Instead, you can be motivated by what the Buddha laid out as healthy desire, technically a different word, like wanting children to be fed, wanting a podcast to flourish, wanting to get a, I like your sweater, like that's a really cool sweater, (laughs) wanting a cool sweater. You know, it's okay. In other words, they're wholesome desires. And as we slow down to taking the good, we build up strengths inside that make us even more effective at fulfilling our dreams. So for me, the sweet spot, I call it aspiration without attachment. In other words, where you're going for it full on, but you find a way to be peaceful with the results no matter what. And without getting hijacked by an invasive sense of stressful drivenness along the way. That's the sweet spot. That was so amazing. I am going to re-listen to this. I don't know how many times because it's so beautiful and you are so humble and so generous and so smart and kind. And I just, I feel so blessed. I feel so rich that I got to sit here with you for this hour. Thank you Mm, so much. You're making me teary. Thank you very much. You're sweet. You're great. You're so sweet and so great. I can see why you have a son who wants to spend that much time with his dad. Um, tell everybody where they can buy the book. We will put it in the show notes and tell everybody where they can follow. I know you have like 7 zillion people on your newsletter and now I'm not surprised why at all, but if they want to join that, tell them also where they can do. You're kind again. Well, briefly, just go to my website, rickhanson.son.net. Simple. The podcast is being well, the book's everywhere, you know, making great relationships. I thought it was an audacious title because it's about making. We're not helpless. We make them, and also we can have them be great. Even if the other person doesn't change, it can feel great or certainly toward great inside ourselves, no matter what they do. I also have a free newsletter. 250,000 people get it. We protect our people really well. And each week, it's a simple practice. You know, like, know that you're a good person. That would be a practice. Or give them what they want. (laughs) Or (laughs) admit fault and move on. Anyway, so that's where people can find that. And I love what you're doing, Kathy. I'm kind of knocked out too. I've been in a million of these. I've rarely felt this much rapport with someone who's contributing so much in the conversation. Often you're with people who throw you a softball question. Okay, fine. You know, get on first base, next pitch, first base. You're like, you're in it with me. It's awesome. Thank you. That's extremely kind. Yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely on the search and I love collecting kind people and, you know, it's like in an orchestra and the music, certain music notes harmonize. It's like, Mm -hmm. I feel like when you find people who are playing at a certain level of consciousness, the music just, it works so well when the notes come together. And so um, I feel so grateful to have had so many good questions because they led me to my amazing teachers Mm. And you're one of my favorites now, Rick. I'm so happy Thank that we you. met. Thank so. you. It's high praise. Very, 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 very sweet. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. All the best. Oh my gosh. How incredible is he? Rick is one of a kind, truly. Now here are the takeaways. Number one, the first step to less suffering is to care about your own suffering. Number two, be loyal to yourself. Get on your own side. 
Number three, your mind is like a garden. You can witness it mindfully, pull weeds and plant flowers. Our brain is fertile for weeds and stony ground for flowers. So we need to tilt to the authentic flowers and give them time to root inside our brain so they can leave lasting traces there. Number four, you have the most power over who you're going to be tomorrow. Number five, as you go through your day, slow down. Slow down a handful of times for a breath or two or three Take in the good. You are literally hardwiring happiness into your innermost being. Number six, you can reach for the stars while feeling content with the present. Number seven, when you actually accomplish something, feel it for two, three, four, or five seconds in a row before you race onto the next thing. Slow it down, let it land. If you're aware of the fullness and the balance in the present, you don't have to be driven by craving. Number eight, the sweet spot is aspiration without attachment. You're going for it full on, but you can be peaceful with the results no matter what. Thank you so much for listening and especially for listening to this episode. I hope that it gives you a lot of peace and it really does mean the world to me that you're listening. I know you have a thousand things that you could be doing. We have so many great episodes coming up, so please subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening and leave us a review because it always helps and it takes like a minute to do that, but it helps us so much. If there's anyone you know who could benefit from hearing this episode, take a second and text them the link or email them the link or post about it in your Instagram. Also, you can come to my retreat if you want to spend three days meditating with me and taking this retreat from your normal routine and really looking at what it is that you want to create in your life. You can go to kathyheller.com slash retreat to grab your spot. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you soon.